We open the Word of God to Revelation chapter 19, and I shall read the first nine verses. And after these things I heard a great voice of many people in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great harlot who did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they say, Hallelujah! And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousnesses of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they who are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And we would say to this word, Amen. Hallelujah. Scientists are very excited these days because they think they have discovered the tomb of Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Now, I don't know what the uncovering of tombs accomplishes other than verifying history and giving us more facts about the past. But I suppose if this does turn out to be the tomb of the father of Alexander the Great, people will start to quote that uh, tradition, which is not true, about Alexander weeping because he had no more worlds to conquer. Tradition says that that's what happened, that Alexander had conquered so much that when he finally got to the end of it, he wept because there was no more conquering to be accomplished. But history tell us, it tells us it didn't go that way. It so happens that a certain philosopher was needling Alexander the Great, and Alexander said this to him, do you not think it worthy of lamentation that when there is such a vast multitude of worlds we have not yet conquered one? 
That's a horse of a different wheelbase. He was not weeping because he had more worlds to conquer. He was weeping because um, he hadn't even conquered one. Now, Alexander the Great was a great man, and his conquests were vast, and his life was exciting, if sinful. But as I reread some bits of his personal history, I thought to myself, I'd have a difficult time giving my allegiance to a man like that. Really, I would. With all of the greatness of his military skill, with all of the power that he exercised, he is not my kind of conqueror. And with a great sigh of relief, I opened my Bible to Revelation chapter 19, and there I discovered my kind of conqueror. There I discovered one to whom I can give my allegiance, one to whom I can yield my life without argument, without defense. Here in Revelation chapter 19, we have the Apostle John listening to heaven's hallelujah chorus. Four times in this section, the hosts of heaven burst forth with hallelujah. And John is privileged to be on hand in the conquests of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are going to be there. It's hard to believe. We don't deserve it. But by his grace, we're going to receive it. If you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, if you've trusted him, if you've been born again, then what you read in Revelation 19, you will one day experience. One day we are going to hear the heavenly hosts as they shout hallelujah. Now, I for one like to be prepared whenever we take off on some kind of a trip my wife always gets out the atlas and the various books, and we know where we're going and what we're supposed to see. I like to be prepared. And quite frankly, I want to be prepared for this occasion. And I think you want to be prepared for this occasion. And so we ought to study this final song in the Bible. The first song that we find in the Bible that relates to God's people is Exodus chapter 15. When God had defeated Egypt and God had led his people through the sea, and there they stood on the shores of the sea, praising God, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now here in the last song in the Bible, we meet this marvelous hallelujah chorus. In order for us to get acquainted with this song and with this scene, Let's consider three different aspects of it. First of all, let's look at the text of the song. Now, I have to pay more attention to the text of a song than to the music because I cannot read music. And I'm sure one of the crosses that Pastor Dinwiddie has to bear is having to have me behind him singing as he leads you. Because all of those dots on those fences are just so much mystery to me. And so let's look at the text of the song. What is the text of this song? One word, hallelujah. 
By the way, no matter where you go in this world, you can say hallelujah, and people will know what you're talking about. Uh, when, I, when I was being raised here in the Midwest, I didn't leave the state of Indiana, I don't suppose, more than twice during my childhood, maybe three times. We just didn't go anyplace. And then I got into Youth for Christ for four years, and we didn't stay home. And I remember when I first went to Mexico to minister, and I don't know any Spanish, but I found that there were three words that I could always detect in preaching or singing or conversation. Hallelujah, Jesus, and Amen. These words are universal. And the only text for this song is just simply hallelujah. And hallelujah is a marvelous word. It's the combination of two Hebrew words, halal, which means to praise or to boast, and then J-A-H, which is a contraction of Jehovah. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Now, it's interesting to note that this is the only passage in the entire Bible where these words are not translated. The Hebrew word hallelujah is used more than 20 times back in the Psalms, but it's always translated. When you go back to the Psalms and turn the pages, you'll find some of the Psalms begin with praise the Lord. Some of the Psalms end with praise the Lord. Some have both beginning and ending, but it's always translated. When you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, it's not translated. It's there just the way it was said. Hallelujah! Four times. Praise the Lord. You see, the word hallelujah is an expression of rejoicing. I don't know what people say when they're happy. People say different things in different ways. Unsaved people say unusual things when they're happy about something. But you know, when a Christian is really wanting to, to show his joy and his appreciation, when he wants to just open up his heart in thanksgiving, there's only one thing he can really say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Perhaps we don't say it enough. The text of this song is a beautiful Hebrew word that means praise the Lord. Now, we're commanded to do this. Verse 5 says, and a voice came out of the throne. Now, when a voice comes out of the throne, you better listen to it. This is not a suggestion or a hint. This is a commandment. And a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God, all ye his servants and ye that fear him, both small and great. Now, if you're serving the Lord, you have no problem praising the Lord. If you're serving the Lord and doing what he wants you to do, you have abundant reason to praise him. I feel sorry for those saints who live on complaining. Paul wrote and said, don't complain about anything. Let nothing be done through complaining or strife. A lot of complaining goes on among God's people. We complain about the weather if it's too cold, and we complain about the weather if it's too hot. And we complain when it's December, and we complain when it's August, and complaining gets to be our main form of communication. We complain about what we don't have, we complain about what we do have. 
When we get it, we complain because we've got it. We don't want it. It would be marvelous if all of us would just learn to say, praise the Lord. I wrote something in the front of my Bible the other day. Whenever I find a statement that just gets a hold of me, I write it down in the front of my Bible. And this is what it was. We must leave to God all that depends on him and think only of being faithful in all that depends upon ourselves. That's good. We must leave to God all that depends on him and think only of being faithful in all that depends upon ourselves. In other words, there are some things we can't change, and there are many things we can't control. In fact, most of what goes on in your life you can't control. It's a marvelous thing to come to the point where we can look at those things and say, Hallelujah, dear Lord, you're in control. Praise the Lord. So if we're serving the Lord and if we're fearing the Lord, that means if we have a reverential awe of him, we bow before him as the great creator, then we have no problem saying praise the Lord. When you see the hand of God at work, you have no problem saying praise the Lord. I think some of God's saints need to get some practice now. Some of God's saints need to find some rehearsal time now. You say, well, pastor, I have nothing to praise the Lord for. Oh, yes, you do. You see, when they said praise the Lord, hallelujah, then the the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down, and they added another word, amen. I'm glad they say amen in heaven. Amen, hallelujah. Now we have two verses to our song. Hallelujah, says heaven. Amen. Can you say amen to God's hallelujah? Is there something in your heart today that says, I want to praise the Lord? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Hallelujah. Amen. That's the text of the song. Hallelujah. Now we ought to notice, secondly, the theme of the song. There are some songs that are composed and sung, and they have no real theme They just don't seem to say much. And after all of the singing is over, you say, what was that about? It was something like eating cotton candy. It's there and it looks good, but all of a sudden it's gone and doesn't leave anything behind. Some music is this way. Some music may be very toe-tapping, but not very heart-searching. Here is a song that has as its theme the victory of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This song, hallelujah, is sung in honor of the conquest of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, during these Sunday mornings, we have been going through Revelation with John and listening to the songs that he heard when he was in heaven. We began in Revelation chapter 4. And as John walked into heaven, he saw a throne. That's the theme of the book of Revelation, God's throne. Forty-six times in this book, God's throne is mentioned. Now, when you read this book, it looks as though Satan is in control. It looks as though the wickedness of man is just spewing itself out. All the sewage of the soul is just flowing across the world. And people are saying, where's God? Where's God? 
But he's there. He's on the throne. And in John, in, in Revelation chapter 4, John sees the throne and he hears them praise the Creator. In John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus comes on the scene. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God slain for us. And the Lamb steps forth in the midst of the throne. And he takes that seven-sealed book. And all of heaven praises not the Creator, but the Redeemer. And they praise the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. In chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John meets a third scene at the throne. The seventh angel sounds his trumpet. And the sounding of those trumpets accomplishes things on the earth. And this final trumpet accomplishes something tremendous. He heard a great voice saying, The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. They fall upon their faces and say, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and thou hast begun to reign. First he saw the throne. Then he saw the Lamb in the midst of the throne. Now he sees the Lord Jesus Christ taking the power and the privileges of the throne, and he is about to act. And in chapters 12 through 18, he does act. In these chapters from the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ begins to tie together all the loose ends of history. He begins judgment. He begins to work among the nations. They are gathered together, and the Lord Jesus Christ conquers. And so this is a song of conquest. It is a martial hymn. It is a war hymn. It is a hymn of victory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this throne that our Lord is seated on is, first of all, a throne of judgment. Would you believe, my friends, that heaven rejoices because God judges evil? Listen to it. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgment. Now, what judgment was it? Chapter 17 and 18, he has judged Babylon. Now, many of you are serious Bible students, and that's what makes it so easy for me to preach here at Moody Church. You know your Bibles. When I mention the word Babylon, instantly your spiritual computer goes to work, and you say, oh, yes, Genesis, Genesis, yes. Nimrod founded the empire of Babel. There was a tower built called the Tower of Babel. Babel means the gate of God, but it means, from God's interpretation, confusion. Whenever God is left out, there's confusion. God is not the author of confusion. Everything that man does ends up in confusion. And so Nimrod, that great dictator, Nimrod, that hunter of souls, Nimrod, that ruthless slave driver, founded Babylon, confusion, in rebellion against God. 
and all the way through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you meet Babylon. It has different names. It has different presentations, but it's the same thing. Rebellion against God, confusion. Rebellion against God, confusion. In John's day, it was Rome. The great city of Rome. And Roman citizens had to say, Caesar is Lord! And Christians would say, Jesus Christ is Lord! And they'd throw them to the lions. All the way through this book, you find Babylon. Babylon. It's the worldly substitute for God's blessing upon his people. Babylon represents the world without God, society without God, the substitutes that men have without God, the commercialism without God, religion without God, philosophy without God. And in chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation, you find Babylon the Great, that last expression of satanic civilization, Rebelling against God, enslaving the world, polluting the world. And Jesus Christ conquers it. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And as you read chapter 18 of the book of Revelation, you find that God judges civilization. Now let me say a word of warning to those of you who belong to the world but don't belong to Jesus Christ. You're belonging to a system that is destined for judgment. This world is going to pass away. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. In fact, God says to his children over in chapter 18 and verse 4, Come out from her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. He's talking there about separation. He is saying to believers in that day, don't you partake of the wickedness of this worldly system. Come out. There are those who laugh about Bible separation. That's been God's pattern down through the ages. He said to Abraham, get out. He said to the Jewish people in Egypt, I'm taking you out. He says to the church, come ye out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so this throne is a throne of judgment because uh, he judges Babylon. Did you notice as you read these two chapters, and maybe you ought to do that this afternoon, that there's no singing in Babylon? Only weeping and wailing. Over and over again in this passage, you find the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth and the shipmasters and all the commercial people, the Wall Street crowd and the financiers weeping and saying, Babylon is falling, and there's great weeping and wailing, and they throw dirt upon their heads. But up in heaven, heaven is rejoicing. There's a song up in heaven, Hallelujah! God has avenged the martyrs. He has avenged the blood of the prophets. Babylon has fallen. 
But this throne is not only a throne of judgment, it's also a throne of grace. Did you notice the hallelujah in verse 6 introduces us to a wedding? It's not only a martial song, it's a marriage song. It's not only a war song, it's a wedding song. There's not only a battle, there's a bride. And he introduces us to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb because everybody who's supposed to be in the wedding will be there on time. That's going to be a great relief to a pastor. And nobody will be there who's not supposed to be there. Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. Wait a minute. At a wedding you give honor to the bride. Oh, no, not this wedding. At this wedding, you give honor to the groom. The weddings that I have performed, it's always the bride who's in the spotlight. The uh, organ plays and the men come out. And nobody pays a great deal of attention to them. But then there's the swelling of the organ and the announcement of the bride. And down the aisle she comes and all attention is focused upon the bride. But in this wedding, all attention is focused on the groom. It's the marriage of the Lamb. Of the many titles of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the Bible, he reaches out and takes one, the Lamb. We're going to be known throughout all eternity as the wife of the Lamb. Not the Creator, not the Governor, the Lamb. The Lamb. It's his redemption name. It's his love name. He's going to say to us, I loved you and I died for you. And now enter into the joy of the Lord. You are for all eternity the wife of the Lamb. Now the bride here is God's people. Several times in his letters, Paul compares the church to a bride. Whenever there's a wedding, people ask a lot of questions. You know, who's the groom? Where did he come from? Well, the the groom here is our Lord Jesus Christ, and he came from all eternity and came down to this earth and died for us. Back in our Lord's day, they would ask a question like, how big was the dowry? How, how much was paid? I'll tell you how much was paid. He gave his life. He shed his blood. And they always say, what did the bride wear? You ever hear that? What did, you, you, you know what the bride wore. She wore what most brides wear, beautiful white garment with a train and a veil, but here you have the bride arrayed in the righteousnesses of the saints. What's that mean? It means the righteousness of Christ. God made him to be sin for us that we might have his righteousness. You'll never get into heaven without that. But it also means the righteous acts of the saints. It means that the service that we are doing for the Lord today in his power for his glory is weaving for us a wedding garment. God, as it were, blends together the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the righteous acts of the saints. And that's the wedding garment. I wonder if some of us are going to be found a, a little bit ashamed. Thank God for the righteousness of Christ. We'd never make it without that. What did the bride wear? The righteousness of Christ. Was there any music at the wedding? There certainly was. Huge choir singing, hallelujah, hallelujah. Where will the couple live? I always hear that. Where is the couple going to live? In heaven? Throughout all eternity? When you turn the page, you are ushered into 
the glorious victory of Jesus Christ. You turn the page again, you're ushered into heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ one day is going to come and claim his bride. And we're going to be privileged to share in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if you don't know the Lamb, you won't be there. If you've never trusted the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, you won't be there. But if you've trusted him, you'll be a part of that bride. This is why the uh, word of God closes with that kind of an invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. There's a third aspect very quickly that I want to share with you. We have looked at the um, text of the song, hallelujah, and the theme of the song, his victory, a throne of judgment, he conquers evil, a throne of grace, he welcomes his bride. Would you notice finally with me the thrill of the song? John got so thrilled about all this, he forgot to, he forgot to write. There he was to write all of this, and he's got his scroll and his pen, and he's just so enraptured. Hallelujah, hallelujah, there's the beautiful bride, and John just forgets himself, and he's just lost in the glory of all of this, and God says, right, that's what you're up here for, right. Oh, the thrill. We don't get thrilled about it. Somebody runs off to see some movie or some play. and gets all excited. has to tell you all about it from beginning to end. They don't get excited about going to heaven. People get excited about new cars, new things. They don't get excited about going to heaven. John was just so excited, he did two very dumb things. Number one, he stopped writing. Number two, he fell down and started worshiping an angel. There in verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Now, John knew better than that, but he was just so carried away. Have you ever been carried away by saying hallelujah? The thrill of this song. I think the problem with saints today is we don't get thrilled about heaven. We've got it so easy here on earth, we aren't thrilled about heaven. God may have to make us uncomfortable before we'll really get excited about heaven. Are you thrilled at all that one day God is going to defeat evil and establish his kingdom? Hallelujah! Are you thrilled at all that Christ will come and take his bride and there will be the marriage supper and glory? Hallelujah! Are you thrilled at all that one day Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever? Hallelujah! Are you thrilled at all that heaven is being prepared for us now and one day we shall see him and we shall be at home in glory? Hallelujah. Does it thrill you at all? Now, if it really thrills us, you know what will happen? We'll plan our lives accordingly. I tell you, when a girl gets engaged, it changes her plans. Fella gets engaged, it changes his plan. They're looking forward to a wedding. And every dime they spend and every plan they make and every decision they have is in light of that wedding. I wonder if we Christians are living like that. If we're spending our money and using our time and expending our energy in the light of the fact that one day there shall be a wedding. We have been engaged to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the engagement ring. He's the down payment. And one day we're going to walk into glory and meet Jesus. And the bride will be complete and the wedding will proceed and the 
marriage supper will be enjoyed. Now, if that thrills us at all, we're going to live accordingly. We're going to be so thrilled by it, we'll want to share it with other people. I tell you, when a girl gets engaged and she's planning a wedding, she tells strangers about it. She'll sit on the bus and wait for the sun to come through and just flash her ring. And the total stranger next door will say, I see you've got to engage. Oh, and tell all about it. Why? Because she's excited and thrilled. Tell how wonderful the bridegroom is. Do we do that? No. We're embarrassed to be excited about heaven. We're embarrassed to be excited about the Lord Jesus. Uh, people may think you're crazy. But they thought Paul was crazy and Jesus was crazy. We're in good company. Oh, dear friends, we're going to a wedding by the grace of God. And this book ends with the Holy Spirit joining the bride and saying, Come! Come! And if you hear this word, then you say, come, and whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. God's final word is, come, come. And then the Holy Spirit, speaking through the bride, looks up and says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, my friend, if you don't have that thrill in your heart, when you hear heaven's hallelujah, if it doesn't thrill your heart, you've gotten wrapped up in Babylon someplace. The world has stolen from you the joy and the blessing of looking forward to being with him. It's a great song. Hallelujah. We sing it to the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah. He's conquered the harlot. And now here comes the pure bride. Hallelujah. We shall enter into heaven and we shall reign with Christ forever and ever. No wonder. John got thrilled. I hope your heart is thrilled today. And I hope you'll be able to say, Hallelujah. Amen. Gracious Father, may nothing rob us of the joy, the joyful anticipation of seeing the Savior. May nothing here on earth become so glamorous and so exciting that we forget we're going to a wedding. Oh, may it be, Father, that all of our spending and all of our doing and all of our living shall be in light of that marriage, that we might be faithful. And we would say from our hearts, Father, hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, may someone come today, Father, to trust Christ, to be born again, to accept the invitation to the wedding and become a part of the bride. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.